Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Senator Carol Mosley Braun, a true history maker as the first Black woman ever elected to the U.S. Senate, as well as the first Black Democrat to serve in the Senate altogether. In this conversation, we talk her memories of growing up on Chicago's South Side, her decision to enter the rough and tumble of Chicago politics in the 70s and 80s, her groundbreaking upset Senate win in 1992, and memories and lessons from her time in the Senate and her iconic political career. And before this discussion, I wanted to say a word about a sponsor of this podcast, politicalwire.com. Political Wire has been my go-to website for political news for years, even as I use sites like Twitter to aggregate a lot of my political news, I find myself specifically making a point to go to Political Wire on a daily basis. And there's a special deal for listeners of the Pro Politics podcast to get 10% off an annual membership to Political Wire. You'll get exclusive analysis, a trending news page updated around the clock with no ads. Plus, you'll receive two bonus newsletters. You'll have access to the terrific Inside Elections with Nathan Gonzalez and ballot access news. Just go to politicalwire.com, use the coupon code PROPOLITICS at checkout, or go directly to politicalwire.com slash propolitics to start your subscription. Thanks to Political Wire for sponsoring the ProPolitics podcast. And now, my conversation with Carol Mosley Braun. Ambassador Carol Mosley Braun, tell me a little how you grew up. In Chicago on the South Side, in a very almost suburban neighborhood, on the south side, but it was very nice. We had a backyard with the mulberry tree and camp out in, in the backyard and pick the berries and make pies. I mean, so it was in that regard, it was kind of idyllic. By contrast, however, my father was insane. And so he he and my mother used to battle all the time and he would beat us. And so it was it was very traumatic in that regard, in contrast with the almost idyllic kind of setting. That was my background. The Chicago South Side of this era, am I correct in envisioning that as a pretty segregated era that you grew up in? But it was. And what happened was with us was that my parents moved from what was called the Black Belt when I was six or seven years old and into this very suburban community. And and it was the old um, story of integration from the time the first Black family moves in, the last white family moves out. And I can remember, frankly, as a child, being in a situation where these Tufts would come and past our schools and throwing bricks in the window. And so we had to hide, hide from them because the segregation was still was very much on the bubble. This was post Brown versus Board of Education, post Hansberry versus Lee. So we were able to move because of Hansberry versus Lee, move into a very nice area. But at the same time, it was undergoing, it was in the throes of desegregation. And this was, uh, this made it very difficult, frankly, in some regards. And what are some of your earlier political memories growing up on Chicago's South Side? Well, you know, my father was himself an activist and he was active with labor organizations. I can't fill in all the blanks about that, but I do know that he knew a bunch of labor leaders and he made it a point to introduce me to labor leaders as well as women who had gone, who become lawyers, who become judges and whatnot. He was in that regard. He was, I've I've already painted the picture of him being insane. But the other side of that was that he was really very open to us. And he helped our education in ways that, frankly, I think I'm still experiencing now. He used to take us around to different churches. So I grew up 
understanding that religious freedom was important and why it was important. I mean, everything from synagogues to mosques to uh, the transcendentalists. I mean, we went to all the different religions on a regular basis because of him. He was a madman, but other than that. (laughs) And were there candidates or campaigns or causes that caught your attention at a young age? But I had no idea I was going to go into politics. I mean, none whatsoever. My dad was a labor activist or activist active with liberal and labor related kinds of things, issues. And so, I mean, I was impressed about that, but I, I did not make the connection between electoral politics and that just kind of working for the common good kind of politics uh, until much later in life. He was what, what nowadays we call independent Democrat. He would vote for Democrats most of the time, but not always. In fact, my father had a thing. He was really annoyed that taxpayers paid for primary uh, primary uh, elections. And because to his mind, you know, that was a purely partisan thing and that the parties themselves should pay for it. It shouldn't be something that, that there was any public funding for. He was kind of a purist on a lot of the issues. And again, I think that impressed me. And in a lot of ways, you grew up politically in the Chicago of of Richard Daley, the original Mayor Daley. What can you tell us about the legacy, warts and all, of the original Richard Daley? I can tell you that because of my dad's, where he was coming from, he was anti-Daley. And so we saw, uh, our introduction was that Mayor Daley was the was a source of all evil. <laughs> that he he was responsible for the police brutality. He was responsible for the the fact that the city services were not being uh, doled out equitably, and the black communities didn't get the same kind of attention that the rest of the city did. My dad, he he actually called himself. He was he was an activist against that. But I can remember the machine, as it was called, was so in place, so uh, uh, inured into the the workings of this community. My dad supported a, a politician who was running against the machine. And the result was that within a day, some of Daly's minions came and tried to shut down his business. Nowadays, that wouldn't be allowed because you've got laws in place uh, that say you can't tie somebody's personal life to their political affiliation. But in those days, it was just no holes barred. And, and that happened a lot. And it happened to my dad. I mean, I saw it up close and personal. They tried to shut him down. And did you ever cross paths personally with Mayor Daley? I did, but it was only briefly. I mean, I was a kid, right? Yeah, I, saw, I got to see him because, I mean, he was around here in Chicago. He was like a demigod for all intents and purposes. And I think I think I ran into him. I don't know. It was a public event and a kind of a thing. And I did run into him then. And I also, about parenthetically, I didn't tell you this before, but I marched with Dr. King. So I was on the other side. Okay. And, and so in marching with Dr. King, I had an occasion to deal with the machine in my own political life, not just my dad's, and saw how they operated. And uh, and frankly, it was not inspired or impressed by it. I was determined, again, to try to do what I could do to make my community better and to make the city better. And that was kind of where I was coming from, which is an entirely different perspective and point of view. And can you talk a bit more about your experiences marching with Dr. King? Well, my mother was a medical technician. She was as apolitical as possible to be. And um, Dr. King was coming to Chicago and she just warned me. And, and actually he was coming over in the area where he was marching in the area where her hospital was. And so she warned me not to go over there because she thought there'd be some violence. And it turns out she was right. 
And um, so I, but I was 16. What do you know when you're 16 and somebody don't go, don't go where the party is. <laughs> like you, you go. <laughs> so uh, I joined the March, uh, the March in Gage Park. And it was, it, it was a real eye opener for me on lots of different levels. Not the least of which I was marching with um, some people, nuns, and they were being called horrible names. And then, and then the other guy who was on the other side of me was a white guy. He was being called horrible names. They were getting pelted with rocks and whatnot. Oh, the one little funny story before I get to Dr. King part. Uh, I'm walking, marching down the middle of the street with the group, right? And uh, there's this little kid who's my age. I mean, I was 16, 15 years old. And he's screaming, semi-humans, go home. Semi-humans, go home. And I looked at him and we made eye, eye, eye contact. I said, that's not semi-humans. You semi-humans is what you're trying to say. He had to spell wrong his side too. He says, oh, thanks. <laughs> so, so semi, no, semi-humans go home. Then no, it's semi-humans you mean. So anyway, so he cha- he looked at me and said, oh, thanks. <laughs> so I don't know if he changed his sign or not, but I know we kept marching and, and we got to the middle of the park and uh, Dr. King was, I was as close to Dr. King as I am to you. I was very close to him because they did, they did this thing that they brought from the South, which was that the women and children went in the middle of the circle and Dr. King was in the middle of that. And then around that were the men. And then around that were the veterans of the civil rights marches. They had this whole drill down. So I was in the middle of there and Dr. King was very close to me and he got hit by a rock. I remember standing there, I was horrified. <laughs> And my first reaction was pick a rock, pick up a rock and throw it back. But he did not. He did not react or respond. He or to his response was was to be, if you will, above it all, very beatific, this look of calm on his face. And he did not react to the kind of taunting that he was getting from the people on the sidelines. I remember that impressing me and striking me why nonviolence was important, that the reason he was going to win the battle was because he had risen above all the ugliness. He was taking a very Christian stand to say, I'm going to be loving and forgiving of these people. And that and that stayed with me as a message. And this is somewhat out of sequence, but while we're talking about some of the different personalities of Chicago politics, you started with, with Richard Daly, but can you talk to me about Harold Washington, what he meant to you, what he meant to the city? Oh, that's another set of stories. Have I got stories? Stories, I got stories. Anyway, Harold Washington... I first met Harold Washington. I was writing, I was in law school and writing speeches for a, a state senator named Dick Newhouse. Newhouse was actually one of the very first black state senators. He came to us, the volunteers in his office, and said, I'm going to be campaigning for my friend Harold Washington, who's in a tight reelection battle. And uh, I'd like you all to help if you're willing. And so, of course, you know, wave your hand, of course, I'm willing. And he's in so, the state legislature at this time? State legislature. Okay. And so we went over to Harold's district, campaigning for him. Knocking, I mean, I went knocking on doors. It was door-to-door campaigning in those days. And so we went knocking on doors. And I was asked to help Harold because, frankly, they were talking about dirty tricks back to the, how the Daily Machine operated. There were like six different Washingtons on the ballot that year. There was George Washington, Fred Washington, Sam Washington. Harold was like in the middle. So... So I was out with the group that Dick Newhouse had put together to knock on doors and try to encourage voters to understand it was Harold Washington, number four or five or what it was that we wanted them to vote for. And so Harold won that election, but narrowly. I think he won by like 300 votes or whatever. And I remember he came back to Springfield calling himself Landslide Washington. (laughs) So he always had a great sense of humor, which is why people loved him so. 
Yeah, landslide Washington. I, I worked with him in that, in that very tight campaign to get him reelected to the state Senate. And from the practical political side, are there lessons or habits that you think you might have picked up from Harold Washington that you saw yourself utilizing over the years? Well, no, he, he actually saved me, not to put too fine a point on it. I had sued my own party of reapportionment, the 1980 reapportionment. And as it turned out, and everybody said I was going to run out of town on a rail. But as it turned, we won the case. And not only win, win the case, but we created new opportunities for Blacks to elect new op- the first Hispanic district in the whole state ever. Um, so we created Hispanic opportunities to elect and Black opportunities to elect by winning that case. And everybody said was that, that was the end of my political career. I was, I was in the state legislature at the time. But Harold reached out for me and decided to name me his um, floor leader. So I became, so instead of getting run out, I became assistant majority leader in the blink of an eye. It was in the same period of time. And so uh, I was able to go back to Springfield, not run out of town or rail, but rather as assistant majority leader. That was one of my first, because there had not been a Black female assistant majority leader up until that point. And what did it mean to the city when you have a mayor like Harold Washington functionally replace Richard Daly and the Daly machine that had been in place for decades at that point? The interim mayor, the interim mayor was, the first, was the first female, Jane Byrne. So Jane got elected, Jane Byrne got elected mayor, and then came Harold. What did it mean to the city? I think because he held up such a light of hope to people. He was a, he was a, a lightning rod for hope. And everybody had a sense that we were coming together as a city the days, the bad old days of segregation and racism and, and being against each other because of political affiliations were over, that we're going to go forward as a, and just build a city together. And I think because of, because of that hope, people were inclined to support him and even to love him. I mean, I have never, they're still holding remembrances for Harold Washington in Chicago. I mean, as of today, his influence went far beyond being just a political leader. It was really a leader, a cultural leader, uh, more than anything else. And well, let me go back to your own career. When, when and how did the switch flip for you that you wanted to become active in politics? And, and how does that result in you ultimately being elected to the legislature in the, uh, in the late 70s? To be honest, I'm going to go back here for a second. A fellow who is very, very influential in Washington these days ran a slate in college called the Action Party. And it asked me if I would stand as a secretary candidate for the action party for student government. And I said, sure, you know, so that was my, and as I think about it, that was my first election to anything. The Tony Podesta, oh, you know, the Podestas, right? Sure. And so it was Tony Podesta put the action party together and I was on the slate. And so, uh, and so I got elected secretary of student government because of that. Little did I know that was the, the precursor of what would eventually be a career in politics, in electoral politics. You ultimately are elected to the legislature in the late 70s. Can you give a sense of what the Illinois legislature was like in that era? It was larger than it is now. We had something called a cutback amendment. In those days, we had three representatives elected from every district. It was a unique system to Illinois and actually was one that, frankly, I wish we'd go back to because it worked. Every district had two members from the dominant party and one member from the, from the uh, minority party. And so we had multi-member districts and cumulative voting, it was called. So it was a really kind of an unusual system. But um, when I ran, there was like a whole crowded field of people. I, got, I ran kind of in response to a dare because this one guy who's still a pundit around here said, don't run, 
You can't possibly win. The blacks won't vote for you because you're not part of the Chicago machine. The whites won't vote for you because you're black and nobody's going to vote for you because you're a woman. So I was like, okay, where do I sign up for this job? So his challenge inspired me to stand for office. And I, I stood for, for the uh, state legislature and one came in first. That was the beginning of a career. I had no idea at the time it was going to be a career. I'm a lawyer and I'd been in the United States Attorney's Office and I just saw my future as being one of practicing law. I had no idea that this was going to happen the way it did. As you're getting your wits about you politically, as you're running for office, as you're serving in the state legislature, can you just give sort of a 101 on what the Chicago machine was like when you were first exposed to it? Well, I tell you, I, I, if anything, it, you know, it's kind of a boomerang situation. It worked out of, as a positive thing for me because the machine alienated me so badly. They, they didn't want to see me coming. And uh, because I was, again, I ran as an independent Democrat from an, an area of the city that is known for its independence, political independence. And so I would work both sides of the aisle on issues without fear of or repercussion or anything like that. And so the machine, they just tried to, they tried to alienate me and tried to isolate me. And what that meant, though, was that I had to turn to the downstaters for support and help me pass bills. And that turned out to be a really good thing because when I ran statewide for the United States Senate, I had people sprinkled all over the state who knew me, who worked with me, and I'd gone to their county fairs and that sort of thing. And so I had support throughout the state because the machine had been so nasty to me. <laughs> Other cities had machines in the 1800s, the early 1900s. What is your sense of what kept the Chicago machine in business while many of the other political machines in other cities had become extinct? Well, it was a patronage. Pure and simple came down to jobs. And anytime you can threaten somebody's livelihood and their ability to feed their families, you've got a pretty powerful hold over them. Because in those days, if you had a job working anywhere related to government, you had to come through the political apparatus to get it. And it wasn't until there was actually litigation that, that, that made the difference because a fellow by the name of Michael Shackman filed a lawsuit challenging the way the patronage operated here in Chicago. And what led to you running a few years later for the Cook County Recorder of Deeds? Is it fair to say that was at least partially to give you a better platform for no, which to run for higher office? it was office? Harold Washington. That was, that was all Harold's idea. I was going to leave politics. I kept, you know, it's like, you know, the Michael Corleone line, I keep trying to leave, it keeps pulling me back. Well, that was... That was a great example of it. So I was I was going to leave politics or electoral politics. And um, Harold said, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. I've got a job for you. How about you run for recorder deeds? And I said, well, don't we already have one of those? And it turns out we did. And Harold said, yeah, well, I've talked to him. He's going to do something else. So it turned out this guy who was in the state legislature, who I knew, hadn't talked to Harold at that point. And so he but went to his grave thinking I took his job, which I hadn't. You know, it's like, wait a minute, not my fault. So anyway, um, so that's how it happened, um, that Harold was putting together what he called his dream ticket and dream team. And so he had uh, all the countywide and citywide offices. He he'd plugged in somebody he wanted in those spots. And I was the person for Recorder Deeds. And then what went into your decision to run in the 1992 election? What, when you entered the race, was very much, and, and throughout most of the primary, was a very much an underdog race for U.S. Senate against a Democratic incumbent in 1992? We have to go back to the time 
And I, I mentioned my dad and the whole civil rights imperative, right? So I had been a civil rights activist my entire adult life. And I looked up and, and there was a vacancy on the United States Supreme Court and President Bush had nominated uh, Clarence Thomas for it. And I could not imagine somebody who was less in the mold of Thurgood Marshall than Clarence Thomas. I mean, I was horrified. You know, this is gonna, you're gonna have quote a black seed. Why would you take, go from Thurgood Marshall to Clarence Thomas? This is not logical to me. So as it turned out, I talked to our incumbent Senator twice. He came to Chicago and came to Recorder Deeds Office. So we had two conversations. And this is Alan Dixon, right? Alan Dixon, yes. He did not understand the civil rights imperative at all. He just didn't get it. And I kept saying to him, this is really important to people like me who've struggled all their adult lives for liberation and for fairness and whatnot. I said, to go the opposite direction with Clarence Thomas is just ins insanity. And, and he, like I said, Alan Dixon did not get it. So I finally said, you know what, then I'll throw my hat in the ring for his seat. I don't know if it's an urban legend or not, but you hear this idea that he had, that Dixon had cut some deal with Republicans and he would, he would support Thomas if they would take it easy on him in what was going to be his reelection, which obviously, if that was the case, it obviously backfired. Do you put stock in those, in those? I've never rumors? heard that before. It wouldn't surprise me though, because Alan Dixon, you know, they called him Al the Pal for a reason. Because he got along with everybody. He really did. And um, whether he cut some deal with the Republicans or not is an open question. I, I don't know. And also in that race, you run. He, he's also challenged in the primary also by a wealthy attorney who spends pretty liberally of his own money. So all of a sudden you have this pretty competitive three-way race develop against a, a Democratic incumbent. So in, in your mind, what was the magic that happened uh, late in that campaign where you came from what must have been a distant third and surge and actually won the primary? The magic was Anita Hill. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, they, that the Senator had two sets of hearings on confirmation for Clarence Thomas. They went through the first one fairly smoothly, but then Anita Hill raised her hand and said, oh, by the way, I've been sexually harassed by this person. Joe Biden suspended the hearings for about two weeks. Chair of the Judiciary Committee at that point. Right. And he suspended the hearings for about two weeks. And in that amount of time, Anita Hill came forward with all of her allegations, her discussion about what had happened when Thomas was her boss. And so it was almost like this momentum started to build among women because most women had experienced some kind of sexual harassment along the way, women who worked, who worked outside the home. And so most people, I think, believed her, thought that this guy did not have the character to be, be a member of the United States Supreme Court. So it was out of that energy that, that lifted my candidacy and lifted my campaign and made it possible for me to win. I mean, you had rich guy over spending all this money saying bad stuff about Dixon. I didn't say anything bad about Dixon. In fact, I talked about Thurgood Marshall as my heroine, my heroine, and um, why it was important that we stay on that same track in terms of Supreme Court and the balance on the court. So I talked about the court and then Anita Hill had, had fired up and really energized the women's vote. And so women saw this black woman running for the office. I knew I commanded the issues, you know, and so they um, voted for me. And that's how I came up the middle. <laughs>
A previous guest on this podcast is Celinda Lake, who's a Democratic pollster who was involved in, in your race. And she talks about witnessing you at times as the energy is and excitement is building in this primary, to paraphrase it, that at times you would almost get uncomfortable with all of the adulation, and especially as people were crowding around you, of your perspective as somebody who obviously cares deeply about these issues and wants to be involved in politics, but wants there to be some physical barriers between you and people at times. Is is that something you can speak toward? You know something, I'm really delighted you noticed that, because she's right, and that's exactly right. I, you know, I was not a customer, I hadn't signed up for all that attention. People, people were getting physical. They were going through my garbage and they were going through pulling on me personally. I just, you know, and it's like, I didn't know quite how to handle that. In a way that you weren't used to as the Cook County recorder of deeds. Or state representative. You know, nobody ever cared about my garbage when I was in the state legislature or when I was a quarter deep. And yet now all of a sudden there was all this attention. And of course, the media, I did a horrible job trying to handle my media relations. I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes. But at the same time, again, I think a lot of it was a function of the fact that I was not really prepared for the kind of spotlight that you're under when you're in a high profile office like the United States Senate. I, I just didn't know. I take the blame or the credit for all the things I did right or wrong. And Celinda's exactly right. I, mean, I think it's wonderful that she noticed. <laughs> and you knew uh, a lot about politics, of course, by this time. But what surprised you the most when you are elected to the Senate, when you're one of 100 U.S. senators? What surprised you about being a senator? What was different from your expectations once you're in the body? What you just what you just described. I mean, I, I was not I was not ready for the kind of, of attention, the kind of focus, the kind of of dissection of every word or whatever. I, I remember I, I, I was there was a uh, there was a, a hearing on an issue, and I remember I was reading something, and when I read about it in the newspaper, they described it as I dropped my head and 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 shame. <laughs> it's like what, you know? I'm just reading something. So I was not I was not accustomed to any of that. And I wasn't accustomed to, frankly, the media attention on me, on my family. I mean, all of that was new and, and, and grating and, and difficult for me to deal with. And there's a quote I had seen attributed to you that the honeymoon and a divorce. Do you remember that line? No, I, I think it was something like, you know, you you had been told to expect there might be a honeymoon period when you were elected to the Senate. And if if this is the honeymoon, then then you would like a divorce. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I'd seen that attributed to you in that in that exactly. era. But what and, and what about the actual job and the duties and the role of being a senator? Did that largely align with what you were anticipating or was that different? It did. And, and here's the thing. Well, a couple of th- couple of issues of why it was different. Um, I think because I had been in the state legislature, I, I knew the drill. I mean, in terms of the, the, the legislative process, there was no. And the Senate, of course, is such a traditional legislative body. That's a legislative body. Unlike the House and the Senate, you could literally, at least in those days, you could write a bill or write your idea for a bill on the back of a napkin and pass it up to the front and everybody would be required to debate it. So the Senate was, re- was a real easy, easy fit for me in terms of the, the job description, in terms of what I was supposed to do. What was less so was, again, I was not accustomed to the kind of media attention. I was not accustomed to, I was not prepared for being this icon and for being this whatever um, celebrity, minor celebrity. I mean, 
all that stuff was just kind of alien to me and still is my least favorite part of the whole <laughs> job. And you've talked about that. You've acknowledged you made some missteps and things you would have done differently. It's a little bit reminiscent maybe today of some of the attention that uh, AOC receives. She's member. doing a better job, by the way, of handling it than I did. Well, but, and after some time in politics, now that you're ex- more experienced, what advice would you give the senator-elect Carol Mosley Braun of 1992 that I think could have made things uh, go more smoothly? To court the press, to do a better job of communicating with my constituents, because you know, I was I was cut off from the people who had elected me. They had no idea what, they, what I was doing in office. In fact, I just had a, I just two days ago, a guy who had been a real supporter was surprised to find that I'd done some work in regards to women in sports. And I had, but that was one of the many things that I didn't know how, how you turn around and you pass a piece of legislation and you turn around and, and promote it, promote yourself in regards to it back home with the constituency that cared about it. And, um, and so I wound up getting promoted by, about things that I was not expecting, the Confederate flag, for example. I was not expecting that battle. So what, what advice would I give her? I would give her the advice to do better in terms of communicating with the media and with your constituents and do better in terms of connecting the dots in terms of your dot job description and, and, and what it, and expectations. And who were the figures in that, those first months, the first, you know, your first period in the Senate, who were the other senators in those, in that period who seemed you know, larger than life or the senators that really impressed you right away? Was blessed on the one hand, because some of the quote, old bulls uh, took me under ring. And I, I'm looking at, either, I've got a picture in here of Paul Simon, who was my senior senator, who was very, very good to me. And so Paul Simon got Clyburn Pell and Pat Moynihan and uh, Pat Leahy. He, he got all these old bulls together really to support me and Ted Kennedy. And so they were really nice to me. And, and, and I'm grateful for that in hindsight. I should have been able to take better advantage of it than I did because they opened doors for me that I didn't have sense enough to go through, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I mean, Pell used to have a, used to have a, a luncheon whenever somebody president of a, of a, a particularly an African country came and came to town because I was the only African-American in the Senate. He would invite me to come. And so, and I would enjoy going to these meetings, these luncheons, with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, even though I wasn't on the Foreign Relations Committee, I should have taken better advantage of, the, of that than I did. So Pell was very nice to me. So was Pat Moynihan. I mean, I had, there were some guys who stood out as being, and women too. I mean, I set up a real friendship with Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer, of course. There was, there was a new crop of women in the Senate and it was called, quote, the year of the woman which to me was kind of funny because when I got elected to the state legislature, they call that the year of the woman. It's like, okay, so <laughs> another year of the woman here. We go. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, and the, the, some of the women senators in my class and even beforehand, uh, people like Nancy Kassebaum was very nice to me. And she was across the aisle. There were relationships that were de- developed that I developed and uh, Bob Bennett, another Republican uh, with whom I was able to interact in a very positive and friendly way. And this is a Senate in, in 92, 93, 94 that still had senators who had entered politics decades before as actual segregationists, you know, racist demagogues from the, the Jim Crow South, thinking of people like Strom Thurmond, Jesse Helms. What were your interactions with some of that old guard 
who, when they came to the Senate, I'm sure never imagined that among their colleagues would be a black woman. Well, you know, it's fun, interesting because um, I'm blanking now on his name. The chairman of the, of the budget committee was very, very nice to me. He had run as a, as a Klansman when he ran for the Senate the first time he was in the Klan and was open about it. Is that Byrd? Robert Byrd? Yes, Robert Byrd. He was very nice. And in fact, to talk about Robert Byrd, what he did, among the things he did, I went and genuflected him, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm just a country girl from the south side of Chicago. And I was trying to get money for a um, high school here in Chicago. And he actually did a carve out in the military budget for my school. And so I was able to turn around and be a hero back here at home uh, because Robert Byrd was being nice to me. So on the one hand, I had that experience. On the other hand, there was a Jesse Helms experience, which I guess you know about. I mean, I was sitting in the Judiciary Committee when Jesse Helms, he had a bill that was actually an amendment to a non-controversial piece of legislation having to do with patents. One of the things that was in that bill was a patent renewal for the Confederate flag. Happily, my staffer saw it and said, oh, well, here's a commitment. I said, well, we can't support that. So I went to the chairman, Joe Biden at the time, and said, you know, this is not acceptable. And Joe Biden helped me work the committee because I didn't realize at the time how sensitive that this is, because this is an issue that's still going on, as you know. But we went around and polled the committee and tried to get the votes to kill it in committee. And we did. Succeeded with that. Then, lo and behold, I'm sitting in a judiciary, in a judiciary committee hearing when my staffer comes up and says, Jesse Helms has just taken the floor with a Confederate flag. I thought I killed it, but he revived it again. The Senate being a traditional legislative body, he had revived it. We were looking, facing a renewal of a patent on the Confederate flag. This is like, and it happened before, but it just kind of gone along and just kind of nobody paid attention to it until you had somebody black with the, with the sensitivities of a black person looking and saying, oh, no, this is not. This is not our flag. Our flag is that stripes, stars, and stripes over there. That gave rise to my battle with Jesse Helms on the floor, uh, in which I won. Quite thank God for, and, and thanks to people again like Paul Simon and like some of the old timers who who signed, wound up. And actually, it was it was Hal Heflin from Alabama who stood up and made the difference because Hal Heflin stood up and said, "My grandfather was a general in the Confederate Army, and it's time for us to move on from this." And, and she's right. And we should we did not need to do this. And when he did that, a number of the old timers came on board. And you mentioned him a couple of times. But tell me about the Senator Joe Biden that you were around for several years in the 90s and beyond. This would have been nearly the midpoint of his career. He's already a veteran senator at the point uh, you uh, become his colleague, but still a decade or more from being vice president. And g- give me a sense of the Joe Biden that you saw up close in the 90s. He was very, very good and good on the issues that I cared about. He was nice to me personally. He talked me into going to the Judiciary Committee, which was no small feat, because I can tell you something. At that point, I was convinced the Judiciary Committee's period were how many angels can dance on the head of the pen, and as well, or alternatively, things that no that people would never agree on. And so I really, it was kind of like, I wasn't really all that interested. Well, Joe came to Chicago and talked me into going on that committee. I remember making a joke with him. I said, you just want to need a hill on the other side of the table. <laughs> he didn't think it was funny. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, but yeah, he, he was in that regard, he was kind of a mentor and he was very, very good to me in terms of both the legislative process. And then later, later, and I'll tell you, this, this doesn't get talked about a whole lot. 
But I think this is really important in terms of telling the whole story. And when I was nominated for ambassador to New Zealand, um, Jesse Helms came back with, a, I mean, he just threw the kitchen sink at me. Every allegation of doing something unethical or something nasty or that you could imagine, Jesse Helms resurrected as to stop my confirmation. Well, Joe Biden worked through each and every issue in a way that was helpful to me because I was able to exonerate myself. And I wound up with a 98 to two vote. The only people who didn't vote for my confirmation was Helms himself and the guy who had run for my seat, who had spent a couple of several million of his own dollars to beat me in the general election. And in your time in the Senate, what was the the vote or the issue of the piece of legislation that you felt was the most tense, even in the chamber itself, you felt like the tension at an unusually high point. Is there a vote or two that comes to mind? Actually, yes, there is. It's the first time I've been asked that question, but that's an important question. Yes, there is, because when Bill Clinton decided to, quote, reform welfare, it was destroying the Social Security Act in terms of a safety net for the really poor. And Pat Moynihan was one leading the charge against that. But it was the president, White House, the presidency against uh, a few senators, and so it was me. I joined Pat Moynihan and and I think there were eight others. I think there were ten of us in the end uh, that voted against it. But that was a very tense vote, and the reason it was such a tense vote was because you had Democrats opposing the Democratic president on something. Frankly, at that point, was the signature part of his agenda. And what do you think of as your biggest accomplishment in the Senate? What are you most proud of from your time in the body? Well, you know, it's funny you would ask that because I, 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 the thing that I really, really, really was passionate about was school construction. And I wanted to figure out a way to have the federal government engage with financing schools in a, more than it does now, right, than it did then. It was less than 10%, like 8% of the funding for elementary and secondary education. And I thought there was a way to get around the old big brother teaching Johnny how to read if we went to bricks and mortar. To have the federal government pay for bricks and mortar, that opens up and frees up the, the, the local funding for curriculum and hiring teachers and those kinds of things. So that was my signature, that was my signature legislative effort. It got too convoluted. It, it didn't, it didn't, it passed, but they never funded it. And so I gather that what happened later was that others came up with ways to come up with the money to do that. And basically the money was coming locally than as opposed to from the federal government. So it passed kind of, sort of. You must have interacted with a young Barack Obama early in his career, maybe even prior to his time in office. Do you remember your first interaction, first impressions of Barack Obama? Well, I do. But remember, he followed me in the state legislature. We we live in the same neighborhood. In fact, he lives down the street. (laughs) So his house, he doesn't live there anymore. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, no, he was... And he was a bright, uh, articulate, energetic young young uh, legislator, as far as I was concerned. You were the ambassador to New Zealand. You mentioned that vote to, to become new, uh, ambassador, 98 to 2, which is Bill Clinton's second term wound down. What does an ambassador do anyway? Can you paint a picture of what a normal day in the life of, of an ambassador to New Zealand is? First off, I was ambassador to paradise because New Zealand itself is so gorgeous and the people were so nice to me. <laughs> it was it was like it was like God had said, you've suffered enough. So here here's your vacation for you. So um, but it was a wonderful experience on the one hand. The thing that ambassadors do, ambassadors go and make friends for the country. That's your job description. 
And so what you do, you wanna make sure that you work through issues with the locals in ways that will make your country look good. And um, in fact, there's an old story, I don't know if it's Eisenhower or whatever, but one of the former presidents would call young ambassadors into his office and show them a map of the world. What will you represent? And the person would go, you know, I'm going to do this one, this country. He said, no, you're representing the United States of America. And so in that regard, uh, the Kiwis, New Zealanders were inclined to support the United States anyway. Uh, So I went into a very uh, receptive uh, environment. There was one little tiny issue that John McCain cared about, but nobody else did. (laughs) So having to do with nuclear submarines, all in all, they were pretty much on the same page as we were on the issues. And so that made my job really easy in that regard. And I got along very well with the, who was then the prime minister. They were on the second prime female prime minister, Helen Clark. I thought I died and gone to heaven. It's like <laughs> the head of the biggest, the biggest corporation in New Zealand was a woman. The head of the courts was a woman. The head of the prime, the, the prime minister was a woman. And so it's like, whoa, what, what bizarro land is this <laughs> am I in? It was wonderful. It was a wonderful experience. And and like I said, everybody was nice to you, unlike the Senate, where everybody was throwing brickbats at you. And in New Zealand, you know, I was Queen of the May. So it's very, very nice. And everybody calls you excellency. <laughs> and, I've, and I've never been to New Zealand. I, it does seem like it's become a bit of a hotspot for travel by Americans, uh, despite how uh, far away it is. What can you impart? You mentioned just how picturesque it is. But what what can you impart about what Americans should know about New Zealand and that part of the world. The country, it's an island nation. It's right at the tip of, uh, right near Australia. What I think Americans should know is that it's an island nation that has successfully, successfully integrated the Maori people who are the indigenous first peoples there uh, with the Pakeha, which is what they call the whites, the Europeans. So you've got this lovely integration going on In fact, you've got, um, they had uh, reparations committees, you know, figuring how they get the Maori back some of their fishing rights and that sort of thing. So they had that sort of thing going on. There's there's not a whole lot of controversy in the the country because it's more homogenous than our country is. I mean, you've got, again, Maori and you've got Pakeha and then there's occasional sprinklings of other people. But other than that, they don't really have a lot of the issues that we have as a function of our as a result of our uh, diversity. And what are you most focused on today in your professional endeavors, other passions you have? What are you, what are you most interested in uh, here at the moment? Well, I've been working with the World War I Commission to help build a memorial there in Washington. It's right across the Willard Hotel. And in fact, Smithsonian uh, Magazine this month has an article about the statue that's going to go in there. So I've been working with them uh, to try to bring that to fruition which has been a real exciting thing. I'm also on the board of the DuSable Museum of African-American History. And so I'm doing a lot of work with them and I'm doing stuff for my church. <laughs> so I'm very, I'm flunking retirement is what I tell people. I, you know, Cause I, I'm, I stay busy all the time, flunking retirement. And let's end on a recommendation from you, the Chicago that you know, if someone is visiting Chicago for a couple of days or a long weekend, can you give some pointers on what they should be doing to get the best experience of what Chicago has to offer? Our lakefront, don't come in November, December, January, February. Okay, that's, this city, this city will will teach you religion quickly because the weather is so bad in those months. But if you come in the spring or the summer, actually summer can get really hot, but if you come in the springtime or the fall, 
it can, it's a beautiful city and it is really an, a, a surprise to most people how pretty it is and how nice it is uh, because people here are very friendly. We're Midwesterners. We tend to, you know, tell them Minnesota a lot nice. We got Chicago nice going on. And is there a spot on the South side people should hit that doesn't get the attention it warrants? Well, I'm on the, I'm on the board of the South Museum of African-American History, and I would recommend people come there. Well, Ambassador Carol Mosley-Braun, Your Excellency, a real honor to connect with you today, talk through your truly historic political career and benefit from your experience and insight. Thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome, Zach. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.